Hey, y'all, welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast. This is volume 100 something. And an amazing show today. Great interview coming up with my boy, Todd McShay, our great NFL draft analyst, college football sideline guru. Guy has more jobs than I do, and that's saying something. Uh, y'all are really going to learn about Todd's path and, and how he got here from just dogged determination and hard work and passion and the willingness to sacrifice the, the current moment for what was promised ahead. And I admire that because it's very similar to my story. So we'll get to that shortly, but first we got to talk about the Super Bowl. We're about 12 hours removed from it, something like that at this point. And I said prior to the game that I felt like it was going to be Chiefs 31-24, something like that. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is what you pay for. What a beatdown. Tom Brady now has seven Super Bowl championships in 10 attempts. He has more Super Bowl championships personally than any other franchise has now. It's just remarkable to me. The guys like Gilbert Grape, or does it was Gilbert Grape that that aged backwards or something, right? Wasn't it? Benjamin Button? Oh, yeah, maybe him too. <laughs> just remarkable, dude. Like, I can't it the, the thing that impresses me the most is how this guy at 43 years old, has willed his body to be in optimum shape to continue to emotionally invest in excellence. And above all of that, how that example wills everyone else to reach a specific standard that they probably did not know previously. Just a remarkable story. I mean, there's, I think, I think it's safe to say, I, I, this is like, I never dreamed I would say this because I think that Michael Jordan is the greatest team sport athlete ever, but I, I think it's Brady now. I, I, and that's not being a prisoner of the moment either. The difference is winning a Super Bowl. And succeeding in the NFL, I think, is harder because of all the elements where basketball, you're out there on the court for everything. And so for Brady to do what he's done is it's unreal. But I will say the TB12 method, I feel like out of anybody that I know, I feel like you could actually adhere to his diet because yeah, you're very um... you're very weird in particular. And I feel like he, a lot of the things that he goes by, you could do. I mean, I, it would be a challenge, I'm sure. But, I, I mean, I would like to try it just to see what it does. I mean, it's just crazy. I, he looks – He's aging he's so, backwards. Yeah, he's so lean. Like when you watch they, – they show at the end of the Super Bowl, they show that 2,000 Tom Brady face, and then it's like that constant morph through the years genuinely looks 10 years younger now than he did when he was 21. Well, I love the photo of him at the combine with the shirt off. And he's just, he looks like some terrible body language, slumped over, just seems just like miserable. You wouldn't pick him out of a lineup down at the YMCA. And 
Now here he is, uh, the greatest of all time. Already was the greatest of all time, even before what happened on Sunday in the in Super Bowl Fifty Five. But it was just a clinic, and and not just what he did, but what the defensive side of the football did for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers under Todd Bowles, the defensive coordinator, was fa- fantastic. I'm a Devin White guy. Covered him extensively at LSU. Loves that I've always loved him because he rides a horse like a cowboy, and and then you got it was just it was just a dominant performance. And I talked to Todd about this, and we'll hear his analysis in a moment. But the lines of scrimmage, uh, it was a whooping. You know what it reminded me of, and this is me being biased, but it was. Ohio State versus Clemson this past year mm-hmm. where you thought, you know, Trevor Lawrence is this all-world quarterback, and he is just like Mahomes, but when you're under duress, there ain't a whole lot you can do. And he was. Uh, more than 50% of his passing attempts, he was under pressure. And that's a rough go. That's a rough go. So congratulations to, to everyone in Tampa. Uh, first team ever to play a Super Bowl at home in their home stadium, and they just utterly dominate. And I will say this: I got beef with Ryan Suckup, major beef, because in my squares contest in my neighborhood, I had Tampa Bay eight, Kansas City nine. I had that square. And when Suckup hit that field goal at the end of the third quarter, and then there was no more scoring the rest of the game, I lost out on a lot of money. Squares is the most fun game, but it is also – it'll make you go crazy. My Like Mia, my 11-year-old, had no idea. I smashed my phone on the ground. I was on my sixth or seventh beer. And there was like two minutes left in the third quarter or something when Suckup hit that field goal to make it 31 to nine. And I was like, damn it, bang, you know, threw my phone down. And my 11 year old was like, what in the world is wrong with you, dad? So did you watch with the family? Because I know on Saturday you said you were, you most likely would probably be alone. Did you end up watching with the fam? So here, here's what wound up happening. So Laney watched Marty and McGee the second hour, the re-air, and I got home from the show after picking up her birthday cake or birthday bunt cakes, I guess, at the nothing bunt cakes. Dude, you want to feel – listen to this. So I walk into the nothing bunt cakes, which I have pre-ordered, okay? I pre-ordered the day before so that on my hour-long trek home from Marty and McGee, I could do what's called a listening session where we listen back to a portion of the show and analyze it with our bosses. And so I get done with that. And then I go to the nothing bunt cakes. I walk into the nothing bunt cakes and I say, hi there. I have an order for pickup. I'm I'm, I'm not supposed to get it until noon. I know it's only 1045, but I'm just, I'm, I'm in the area. So I'd love to see if they're ready. Name. Smith, first name, Mary, Marty, close enough. I've been called a lot worse. And there, you know, there's like a four because of COVID-19, 
there could only be four patrons in the store at once. And so the, the girl yells out, 12 buntinis and three buntlets. And I'm like, yes, 12 buntinis and three buntlets. So anyway, I leave there. I head home. And Lainey and her college roommate, Emily, who watched our kids for us while we went on vacation a couple weeks back, are laying in my bed watching this Briere of Marty McGee. And Lainey is like, why? I'm going to watch the Super Bowl with you. Why are you saying that I'm not going to watch the Super Bowl with you? Here's the facts, Jack. She did. But midway through the first quarter, out. Game over. Nap. Dog curled up in her lap. Game off. Uh, she woke up. Midway through the second quarter, I think it was, when the Gwen Stefani-Blake Shelton commercial came on for T-Mobile, I think it was. She made me roll that back. Uh, so she watched that part. Um, of course, she was awake for the most meaningful part of Super Bowl 55 to the Smith family, that yeah, being my we'll best friend. We'll get to friend. that in a minute. Okay. I've got a, I've got a, a couple more questions for you. Okay, let's uh, go. I'm more shocked, not question, but I'm more shocked that Laney actually watched Marty and McGee on Saturday. There's a re-air. I know, but I'm still, you know, listen, yeah. unless unless we have Patrick Dempsey or Chase Rice or something like that, I didn't know Laney consumed our products. You got to think about this. All right, so the, the uh, live airing of Marty and McGee is I leave my house at 5.35, I get to the studio at 6.35, 6.40 after I've stopped at the Starbucks at 6 a.m. and 10 seconds because my Starbucks opens at 6. Grande Pike, or excuse me, Venti Pike, cream, three raw sugars. Turn on Sports Center at night, which Sports Center at night is the bomb because anything that I possibly missed – which in some cases is everything. I, I mean, I am caught right up. Not only am I caught up with what happened, but they're airing sound so I can hear from the source going into Marty and McGee. So then it's 7 to 10 a.m. We're live doing our shenanigans. Get in the truck, uh, talk, download with McGee after. Hop in the truck, drive home. Get home sometime, you know, around 11 o'clock or whatever. And uh, so now when I got home, she's an hour into the re-air. So because there's a re-air, it's more on her time schedule. Gotcha. So now we'll get to the most important part that we need to talk about. And that is the national anthem. Take the floor, sir. On the list of amazing things that I dreamed I might experience in this life. As a kid growing up in a nowhere farm town that a lot of people, they stay there and that's awesome. You know, if that's the life that, that you want and you dream about, that's beautiful. Uh, most of my high school friends did that. I always wanted to just like go and try to do huge things. And so on that list of amazing things I dreamed about, 
best friend singing national anthem at Super Bowl was not on the radar. And so when Eric Church got the opportunity to to do that, he's told me since we've been friends almost 15 years now that he would never sing a national anthem at a sporting event. Never do it. Because it's such a difficult song to sing. And no matter how well you sing it, uh, there's going to be a lot of criticism. And, you know, he said, he told the LA Times recently that if you take any liberties with the song at all, and it's not a traditional rendition, you're a communist. And so he had, you know, there, he, he's always had that in his mind. Well, when, when you win Entertainer of the Year in country music, it offers you this platform that is massive because in a lot of ways, you're suddenly the face of the industry. And so the NFL comes to him and they want him to sing the anthem. And his manager, John Peets, who is an amazing human being and who is the smart, honest to God, the smartest person I know. Eric's like, man, I don't, I don't think so. And then he said, hold on. Sends the Eric some of Jasmine Sullivan's work. And Eric's completely blown away. Like, good God, this is the greatest singer I've ever heard in my life. So they collaborate and um, ultimately winds up being an absolutely stunningly beautiful moment. They killed it. They absolutely killed it. And I felt like, uh, to Eric's point, again, when he spoke to the L.A. Times, being a Caucasian male country music singer paired with an African-American female soul-singing goddess uh, was a great vision of unity for our country. And they absolutely slayed it. The amount of pride that we had in this house, I made my kids come and sit on the couch with me and with Laney and watch, not only made them watch the national anthem with them, with us, but I also made them watch America the Beautiful, which was an amazing performance by her. And I wanted my children to see that. And I, because I wanted them to, I wanted them to be a, have that memory of someone that matters that much to their mom and dad having that stage when they're old enough to understand that stage. And they're not old enough yet to understand what the Super Bowl national anthem is. But someday when they do, and, you know, they're someday when we're with Eric somewhere and they're old enough to understand what the Super Bowl platform is and that hundreds of millions of people are watching this thing, they will have a better context on, holy smokes, man. That guy did that there. Those two 
I mean, absolutely crushed it to the point where it's basically universal on Twitter, you know, people loving it, a few trolls, but Hey, that's what's going to happen. And it was just awesome to see, but I, I text you before uh, the national anthem and it was basically the, how I compare it is how I was pregame for an Ohio state game. That's how it was for you because you no longer root for teams. You root for people, right. but this, this Eric is your team is one, you know, one of the teams you root for. And that's what it felt like when you're talking about how proud you were and to see that. And for people that might be new to the podcast, if you want to understand the friendship, just open up your book. Never settle. Yeah, yeah. It, I'll be honest with you. It was a very emotional thing to watch for us. Um, it, it's it's like the American dream personified because he's from a small town in the middle of nowhere. He went to Nashville, Tennessee, with a a, a dime in his pocket and a dream in his soul, and. He got told no, and 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 he got told no again. And then a guy named Arturo Buena Ora, who is a savant, heard Eric play lightning in his office and said, yeah, I want to sign you. And then if y'all knew the story of, of, of what happened from that point on, um, Y'all have heard me say time and again that I'm a grain of sand, and I am a I am the I am the smallest grain of sand to have this life. Growing up where I grew up, having no formal training whatsoever in television, having a little bit of talent as a writer that I got from my mom, and countless people believing in me along the way, and cracking doors for me here and there, and being just naive enough when they crack those doors to not ease through them, but to kick the sun down. Um, I know I'm a grain of sand, but as small a grain of sand as I am, Eric's even smaller because making it in country music is a subjective definition, but being the biggest star in the thing in the game is not. And especially when, <laughs> when you look at his path, getting fired from the flats tour and becoming a pariah in the industry and having to scrap and claw his way back and play free shows when he didn't have any money on and on and on all that, all the way to singing the national anthem at the super bowl. I was going to say, that's a long ways to go from where performing in bars where there's more staff there than people at the bar to perform for to the entire world. And the one thing that obviously I'm going to be biased towards Eric. So I thought he was going to crush it. But one of the reasons that I did was this isn't the first time that he's been on stage with a woman that can sing like no other. He well, does that yeah. on a nightly basis when he performs. Yeah, he does. With Joanna she Cotton. Does. Yeah. Joanna Cotton's a, 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 a just, I mean, she's a Juilliard educated, Juilliard trained, phenomenal world-class operatic singer. And uh, I just, yeah, I'm a, I'm very proud. I'm very proud of my buddy. Uh, very thrilled for him and his entire team. And uh, I imagine that'll be a one and done. I'd say that's probably. I imagine that'll be a one and done. The only um, time he should be back at the Super Bowl is if they uh, 
tell them for let's give you the halftime performance and then we that would be amazing that's a whole other conversation for but so we had the high of that um we're talking before the podcast started and we wanted to mention this before we get to todd mcshay but the the sad news that we received um last night with the passing of pedro gomez espn reporter yeah travis it's a devastating moment for all of us at ESPN, the passing of our brother Pedro Gomez is shocking. I never talked to Pedro when he wasn't overwhelmingly joyful, when he didn't care so deeply about your family and ask about how you were doing. Uh, Universally respected throughout the entire Major League Baseball community, one of the most renowned and respected reporters in that sport. And I will tell you on a personal note, I always had a very unique kinship with Pedro. I'll never forget that two, two mo- th- three moments really, but that I want to share, but uh, two that were, were funny. One was his son, Rio, a great pitcher, pitched at the University of Arizona, later got drafted and was sent to Salem, Virginia, which is near where I grew up. And Pedro called me just giddy that Rio was going to be with the Salem Red Sox and he wanted to know everything about Salem. Tell me about the Roanoke Valley. What do I need to see? What should I tell him? And I'll just never forget the joy in him as a father, and the pride within him as a father. And I remember telling him that is the ultimate, the old, forget all of this TV mess as a dad, the unbridled pride and joy in his son's accomplishments was just a beautiful thing to hear. And then there was another moment. I forget where I was. I was on assignment somewhere And Dale Earnhardt Jr. was running a race at Darlington, South Carolina in NASCAR. And Pedro was going to Darlington Raceway to to cover this event. And, man, my conversation with him in the aftermath of that and Andrea Pelkey, one of my producers who's like a sister to me, she and I are thick as thieves, she took a photograph. Pedro wanted a picture at the start-finish line at Darlington. And to see the smile on that man's, he had an electric smile. To see the smile on that man's face at Darlington and to hear him download with me his experience at NASCAR and how wonderful everyone was to him. And Andrea telling me in the aftermath that so many fans were like, Pedro, man, welcome to NASCAR. Just a beautiful thing. I just, uh, I, I, I'm so I'm so sad. I'm so sad. And I'm praying for his family. It's just a devastating loss for us, Travis. Yeah, he's uh he was a producer's best friend. And what I mean by that is selfishly, when you're trying to get people, you need them to do a favor for you and say, yes, they'll come on. And his hit rate was probably 99%. And if he couldn't, he would still respond and say, sorry, Travis, I can't, but next week hit me up. Because I'd hit him up a lot of times on Sundays to preview Sunday Night Baseball. And then many of the times he would say, 
I'm on campus. Do you need me to come over and do it and, and studio? He didn't have to. He didn't have to, no. you know, he's got TV requirements that he's got to, you know, do a hit in 30 minutes, but he would take that time to come over. And he was just one of the sweetest men. And you, that, you said that smile is infectious. Yeah. And you're right. I remember the one time after he was in studio and his son was brought up and you, you asked him about his son, Rio. And man, he just light up. Like, a, I know, man, just, just beautiful. And I remember, I think it was the Van Pelt show, uh, 2000. 16 or so 17 maybe he went to cuba and it was to report on major league baseball being there and he took his father and brother's ashes to cuba and was able to sprinkle them out there and as someone who was a very very proud cuban american to see his report on Van Pelt about that and the emotion and how much he carried that on his sleeve was just beautiful. To be able to fulfill something that his father wanted that badly and to see how much that meant to Pedro. Um, we're going to miss you, brother. We're going to miss you terribly. Difficult to transition from there, uh, but we'll do that now to another one of my ESPN brothers. Todd McShay is a wonderful human being and someone that I admire greatly for the dad he is and the professional that he is and the tireless worker that he is. And I wanted to have him on here to discuss the Super Bowl and the draft coming up and kind of his path to where he is. And I learned so much, and you guys will too. Um, here's my guy, Todd McShay, on Marty Smith's America. It's a great pleasure for me to bring in my brother from ESPN College Football, Todd McShay, ESPN draft analyst, insider, sideline analyst, and host alongside Mel Kuyper and Field Yates of the First Draft Podcast. Man's got more jobs than I do, and I feel like that's saying a lot. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, Look, man, uh, we're, we're 12 or so hours removed, 10 hours removed from what we all just saw in Super Bowl 55, so I just want to start with how do you react to what we all just saw? I mean, there's so many angles to go, but first of all, everyone's going to talk Tom Brady, and I get it. He was efficient. That's the best way I can put it. He clearly had a game plan. His leadership showed out. You can just tell the difference in an organization when they have the confidence in the guy who's in command, and, and that's what you saw. Two weeks to prepare for a team, and I have to believe that he was a huge part of the preparation and game plan heading into it. But the, the biggest standout to me, honestly – was the trenches. You know, Kansas City loses its offensive tackles, and Tampa's defensive line, which is, has been underrated, and defensive front with, um, with, with those speedy linebackers. Devin White was a you know, first-round draft pick, which I thought was a, a great choice a couple of years ago. They just had so much speed up front, and they were able to overtake the Chiefs' offensive line, and that was the difference. And the Buccaneers' offensive line was outstanding and gave Tom the, the time that he needed and, and opened up holes for, for Fournette and, and, the, and uh, Jones and the rest of the running backs. So, to me, if you're an offensive lineman or defensive lineman in this upcoming NFL draft and you're waking up this morning, 
I think you made a little bit more money off of last night's game than than probably you thought coming into the process. Hmm. Interesting. You've been evaluating college to pro talent for half your career now or whatnot. What enables Brady to will others to excellence? What what is it within him? To me, it starts with, you know, leading by example. Tom Brady today and really in the last 10 years is not the Tom Brady that came into the league. Tom Brady came in the league hungry and angry, uh, but was young and was just learning, hadn't developed physically. And it's, it's scary to think because I, I wake up after playing with my kids, you know, four and a six year old. I wake up at 43 years old in the morning and I'm like, Ugh. you and me both. You know? And he looks better today if you see him in person. Not, it's not even close, actually, physically than he did 20 years ago. The fact that everyone knows what he's putting into it and what he's dedicating to it and how important the organization and winning is, that speaks for itself. And then he's, he's relatable and he cares. You know, he, he actually will take the time to, to know every, every person's name and something about them on, on the 53-man roster and, and actually approach them. And he's not this diva Tom Brady quarterback who's married to a supermodel and has everything in the world. When he's there, he gives everything to the organization and everything to his teammates. And I think that that goes a long way with, with these guys who look, look up to him and, and see him as the greatest player in the history of, of the NFL. It's always difficult to do this, and what, but I'm going to ask you to do it anyway. Uh, if you were in your current position in 2000, how would you have evaluated the Tom Brady that was standing there at 199? I did. I actually did. That's the funny Oh, you part. did? I, oh, how, well, what, yeah, was your, I, what was your evaluation? I graduated in 1999. I got an internship in 98 with this, this guy named Gary Horton, who, who now he worked for ESPN for a long time and went back and is working with John Gruden as a personnel guy with the Raiders. He had started this company called The War Room at the time, and it turned into Scout Inc. for ESPN. Long story short, I was making $12,000 my first year coming out of college. So I couldn't, I could barely eat, let alone go out and do anything. So all I did was watch tape. So for the first two years, I just studied tape and we wound up doing this for sporting news at the time, mm-hmm. um, a draft, a draft guide that they would print and put on shelves. They don't really do that much anymore. But at the time I gave him a third round grade and said he was the most underrated player in, you know, coming out in that year's draft. And I still gave him a third round grade. You know, anyone who didn't give him a grade at number one overall missed. <laughs> so that got attention and actually helped my career at, the, at that point. So I did have an opportunity to study him. I thought he was better than people thought he was, but I still gave him a third round grade. So I can't take a whole lot of credit. All right. I, I want to I ask you what you saw in him in a second, but I'm intrigued that it helped your career. So your evaluation of Brady being rounds and rounds and rounds better than what the people who got paid to draft people thought impacted your career positively how like who saw it how did that impact I, the the editor for sporting news mike narsted at the time saw it and then the next year did a kind of a feature on or i think it was two years later you know after he had won the super bowl a feature on on the fact that they showed the the um the snippet of of it saying the most underrated player in this year's draft class and so that it that got a little bit of attention it kind of started some positive momentum for me at the time. Now, I was 23 years old or 22 when I made the evaluation, 23 when, when they, you know, gave me a little bit of recognition, but I'm the same age as Tom. So it's kind of, I've kind of grown up throughout his career and lived in new England 
while he was there for, for 20 years. Why did you grade him third round? What did you see? Accuracy. He just, he, he was, he was pinpoint accurate. And that to me is the most important, important physical trait. And then kind of the mental toughness, you know, physically it was an embarrassment at the, at the combine. He had the, I, one of the worst, you know, combine workouts in the history of, of the NFL combine. But when you watch him on tape, the, the ability to move inside the pocket was always there. The accuracy was always there, and he was just—he was a fast processor. And by that, I mean he could get from read one to read two to read three a lot faster than uh, than most quarterbacks that you see at the college level. Let's go back down your personal path for a minute. Your career intrigues me. You and I got to ESP in the same year. I wonder, like, how did you get to that? Like, where did you grow up, and what activities shaped your youth? Uh, I grew up in a small town north of Boston called Swampscott. It was a like a little fisherman's village. Swampscott. And that's a hell Swampscott. of a great name. I know, right? We had an un, an unbelievably unique class. This in this tiny little town, we graduated. I think like 170 uh, people in our kids in our high school in our graduating senior class. But I grew up with Peter Woodfork, who was one of the directors of Major League Baseball. Dave Portnoy, who who's the you know the, runs Barstool Sports. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I Dave and I were born on the same day in the same hospital back in 1977. What? I swear, I've known him since we were four. Were we y'all won, buddies coming up? Yeah, we we were we played wiffle ball, stick ball, football, hockey. I mean, every sport we could play. There were nine of us all that all played together. Two two guys of, of the group were chefs. I mean, that we have an unbelievable. Um, Todd Klein is, is now with WME, but he was the COO of the Miami Dolphins for for several years and worked with the Redskins. I mean, I, it's amazing from this tiny little town, this little fisherman village, and we won multiple state championships in baseball. We were ten and one our senior year in football. We we just had a really great group of guys from five years old. We were fighting and battling and competing constantly. That's fast. Like somebody needs to do a story on Swamp Scott. It's funny. I, I know we have pitched, a lot. Of- it, 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 someone pitched it to to um uh, some group, and eventually I think it's going to get done. Portnoy, Portnoy, eventually we'll get around to it. But um, but yeah, I mean it's it's this tiny little town, man. You can drive through it in five minutes from from one point to the other. Yeah, it's a lot like Parisburg where I grew up. It's funny you say that. Like my group of childhood friends, um. I'm doing what I'm doing. My best childhood friend is the trainer for the Tampa Bay Rays. Our other best friend is the registrar at Virginia Tech from this little old farm town. Isn't it amazing how it can kind of shape you, just the people that you're around? Like if I didn't have those friends and and I want to hang out with different friends, maybe I'm a different guy today. You know, know, not to get you know, too deep, but it, it, you just so every once in a while, I think to myself, if I didn't grow up around these eight other guys that we hung out with almost every single day and comp- I mean, we would have, a, if we had to throw out papers in the classroom, it was all right from 15 feet, who's going to get it in, yes, you know, <laughs> every single stupid thing we did that was competing. And I think that that, that kind of drove all. I of agree. Us. Uh, I'm the exact same way. I mean, we drove, uh, my mom was the choir director in the church and their parents were the, you know, they were in the choir. Like we tore the we tore the recreation room in the church <laughs> to shreds playing Nerf basketball and like right. tackle football inside. It was just ridiculous. Oh but yeah. 
Those are the, that's the good stuff. And we're still, I text with those guys every single day, still, every day. Oh, me too. Me too. I agree with it's you. It's great. Uh, it's funny you say you made 12 grand starting out. My first salary was 12 eight, and I bought Laney's engagement ring on that salary. So I was eating a lot of ramen noodles, bro. Um, good on you, man. I don't, uh, <laughs> well, wherever you're living, I think it was different than Midtown Manhattan. I, I could barely get a slice of pizza and a salad for, for, for an entire day. <laughs> so how do you end up how do you end up joining ESPN in 06? How did that unfold? Was it the envelopment of Scouts Inc.? So we did a contract with Sporting News for a couple of years. Out of the gate, Gary Horton had left. He was with um, Bill Belichick with the Cleveland Browns, and he went down to Tampa for five years. And he left the league and wanted to start an independent scouting company. That's when I joined in 1998. It was me, Dean Dalton, who was a running backs coach for the Vikings eventually. Uh, Jim Nagy was with us, mm-hmm. who now you know worked yeah. at ESPN. Uh, he, he's the director of the, of the senior. It was basically the four of us. And we had 16 NFL teams that subscribed to, our, you know, to what we were doing and, and basically used us as, as a cross-check for scouting. We realized after about a year that we couldn't make enough money to sustain it just off of these contracts. So, so we went out and, and did some, some media work with Sporting News. And then two years in, I think it was two, um, ESPN came in and said, you know, let's do a five-year deal. It's kind of when the internet was starting to boom and they, they were trying to find content. And they said, let's do a five-year deal and we'll take you away from Sporting News. So we did that with ESPN. And after one year with ESPN, they ripped up the contract and bought us out and they they've, you know, owned us, if you will. And, and I've, I've become a, a salaried employee ever since. I think that was 2006. I want to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the same year I joined yeah. when they were reentering the NASCAR business yep. too. How's that feel when your analysis before, like as the internet is unfolding that way, how's that feel when your analysis that a team subscribes to ultimately results in them choosing that player, and then that analysis proves correct? Well, I mean, I don't, I don't ever think that anything I've, I've written or anything I've done has been decisive in terms of what a team is picking. But I do, like, during those, that first couple of years, it was, especially being so young and just new to all of it, I, the fact that, that a general manager was actually looking at it and then would, would talk to me afterward, like ha- having Ozzie Newsom come and say, you know, I read your report on, on this player and, um, you know, you, you were, you were on and, uh, having Bill Polian tell me that he, you know, that, that, that we were right on, on, uh, Dwight Freeney, little things like that. It, it just boosts your confidence when you're 24 years old and have kind of, I don't want to say no idea, but, but very little idea of like how big things are and, and how important, you know, the, the game of football is in the NFL and, and how big the picture is. So that gave me, a, to be honest, it gave me a lot of confidence early on. Just, I was, thr- I mean, I was at University of Richmond coming from this small town. I was a nobody. I never really got to play. I, was ne- I wasn't a star player at any position. I just loved the game. And I knew I wanted to stay around the game. And so I worked my tail off. I, I cut out, a, our, I took our closet and then our, apartment our senior year and was like guys take your jackets and your boots somewhere else I'm making this into a study and I'm I'm going to shut the door at night and work here from like 10 to 2 in the morning just so I can get this job you know I was so dedicated to making sure that I had this job that they were playing beer pong out in the living room Dude. and I had the door shut with with um you know headphones on at the time 
We have the and, same and story. Trying, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's fascinating I, I've, to me. I've heard yours. When, when, I mean, did you, when I was a, a, a junior and senior at Radford University, my four housemates were throwing keg parties, and my, I would come home from covering Liberty High School against Heritage with a TR-80 that I used a payphone placed into couplers to send back to the Roanoke Times copy desk in the middle of freaking <laughs> nowhere, Virginia. And I'm getting home at 1.30 in the morning exhausted, and my friends are partying their asses off, and I just go to bed because I was just so gassed. And I would sit there and tell myself, is this worth it? Am I doing the right? Like, I was so yep. damn driven. I was so driven yep. to be something. And, you know, now, of course, with hindsight at, at uh, almost my mid-40s, I, I see it. But at the time, I just want – was. it's the same exact story. Yeah. I missed out on so many nights out, but, like, did I, did I miss out? You know? <laughs> I'm, I'm, was, I'm good with it now. Me it, too, it was bro. Tough. It was, I mean, there, there, there were some tough decisions that you look back on, like, that was, actually wasn't a tough decision. But, like, in New York – all these guys are making all this money that I you know, went to school with or, or grew up with. And, hey, let's go out. We're having partying and bottle service and clubs and this. I, I can't. You know, I can't. I got, I got to be up tomorrow because I'm working at CBS and writing notes for Jerry Glanville. You know, <laughs> like That's little so stuff like cool. that. I remember like saying no to that is like it, when you're 22, 23 years old, saying no to that seems like the biggest thing in the world. And then you look back now like, thank God. That I yeah. said no to that. You know? Yeah, it's it's so hard when you're that age to see a broader scope and and any have any level of clarity. But I'm so grateful that that it was the same way for me. You know, you talk about being enveloped by ESPN when you're with Scouts Inc. and that kind of led to this path to 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 having such a great sustained sustained career at ESPN. My thing was, I mean, I was at NASCAR.com as a 22-year-old. They gave me a major bump to 20000 to move to Charlotte. <laughs> and all of a sudden, dude, I'm this bumpkin from a hayfield who's been in four states in my life. And I'm flying to San Francisco to cover races. And it wasn't just writing on the internet. I mean, I had to be a technical guru. I sat up the official timing and scoring, which is a really big deal in auto racing. All of this stuff for the brand new internet in 1997 and 98, right. you know, and so, so I learned so much and I don't know why, but I've always been in a position where I just, and it wasn't even a conscious decision, but getting to know the officials like the NASCAR officials, because I was on their clock. I had to be there when the garage opened. I had to be there when the garage closed. And they became my family. And guess who wound up being my greatest advocates and sources in a lot of cases? Right, exactly. Because you're one of them. Exactly. It, it's exactly. just cool, man. Well, I mean, I, I always say, too, we, we were – lucky and i always I, I go back to the quote of luck Blessed. is when pre pre preparation yeah preparation meets the opportunity I, I don't believe in luck either it's it's you got to be prepared and when the opportunity is there you got to take advantage 
but we were we were blessed that the internet exploded kind of right when we were starting so we were learning as everyone else was learning you know mm -hmm. yeah yeah no doubt what was so 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 you're doing the the the, the scouting analysis and then you transition to TV. What was that transition to TV like for you? I'll never forget getting a phone call from, from an executive at ESPN. So I haven't run this by, I had been doing some ESPN radio. I did ESPN radio with Dave Revson, the college game day every week. You know, we would travel like eight weeks during a season for, for a year or two. And it was Dave Revson and Jerry DiNardo. And, and we had a blast. It was great. But that was the most I had done. And I did a little bit of TV for um, ESPNU. So I would fly down to Charlotte every week and do a few shows with like Mike Gottfried and, and all those guys and then and fly back to Boston. And, and that would be it. So I was kind of just learning on the fly. But then I got a call from, from one of the, the execs in Bristol saying, would you be open to going back and forth with Mel Kuyper on TV? I'm like, yeah, why are you asking me? <laughs> like, I, I haven't talked to Mel about this yet, but I was like, I think you should probably, the, the phone call should probably be Mel first and then, and then call me and, and tell me that I'm doing it, not, not ask me. But they, they called and asked to make sure that I was okay with doing it before they even approached Mel. And the thing about Kuiper and I, here's the, the real story is we get hostile with each other every once in a while. We really do. And it's, but it's like, with your buddy who you're just having a, a legitimate fight with, but two seconds later, you're, you're over it. He has been probably, I would put him up in, in the, the top two or three people in ESPN in terms of supporting my career throughout, throughout it. And, and nobody knows that because we're always, we're, we're on TV, we're, we're talking and the producers set up these debates and everything else. But the bottom line is for as much bickering as we do back and forth, he is, he's always had my corner. He's always been in my corner. He's always had my back. And he's um, it's remarkable from day one, that first phone call he got, he's like, yeah, absolutely. Bring Todd on. He, I mean, he's, he's Mel Kuyper. He's the institution. Mm -hmm. He's never had to worry about some young punk, you know, coming and stealing his job. And, um, and he's, he's acted with that confidence the, whole, the entire time. And he's been such a loyal supporter of me even early in my career when I didn't deserve it at that point. Um, and, and then especially in the last, several years, you know, helping me elevate to the, the first night of the draft and everything else. He, he has always been in my cor corner and I, I, I will never forget, you know, what he's done for me. I personally believe that's extremely rare. It's especially so rare, in man. our business. We, because, we know this business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it's very rare for someone who is an institution to have open arms to someone who is young and vibrant and connected and handsome or pretty and all of all of those things but to to be genuinely open to not only the platform that they have but helping cultivate your ability to be great right. that's the rarest right. of traits in our business it really is and that's it, it surprised me early on it, it doesn't anymore because i'm used to it but i but i've gained so much respect for the man for a, the, the confidence that it takes to not care, right? That someone could be treading in my, in my water. And B, just, just to have, you know, a good heart and to like genuinely not just say, oh, yeah, I want to help you out. But hearing from back channels, oh, hey, Mel called. 
and he really wants to make sure that you're a part of this and, and wants to, you know, he loves the, the debating and the, the checks and balances of it. And, you know, that's, it, that's the cool stuff that, that people don't really get to see a lot. I'm fascinated by what your preparation must entail because you do the sideline analytical work in the biggest games in college football. And for people that don't do that, that's, that's a lot in and of itself. And then you, you have to stay on top of what every one of these players is doing. You're also aware of what contracts are expiring or the details of contracts in the NFL. All of that seems overwhelming to me. How do you, what is that preparation and how do you maintain that body of knowledge? Well, it, I mean, I, I don't want to bore you with it, but it starts in – really starts in the middle of May. So I, the, the draft ends basically May 1st. I take a couple weeks and, you know, regroup. And then from the middle of May till early July, we, we it's me and, and Steve Mensch, who I work with, He's he's been kind of an assistant for, I think, 15 years now. Just watch tape and, and get, get like the top 150 players done, like a baseline, what their background is, what their skill sets are, and so we have that going into the season. And during the season, obviously, I'm getting to meet – doing the, the games have, it's so helpful because I'm sitting in meetings with, with Nick Saban. Yep. And I'm sitting in meetings with, with Dabo Sweeney. And you. I'm talking to them, and I'm talking to the player, and I'm talking to the coordinators. And so now I'm taking notes, preparing for the game, but I'm also keeping those notes for, for the NFL draft. So then the season ends in, you know, in January and from that point on, I am basically outside of doing TV and going to a couple pro days. I'm actually going to, to Trevor Lawrence's pro day on Friday. I'm not sure why he's going to be the first overall pick. Uh, he's going to throw the ball around 60, 70 times. And we all know that, but, but it's a story. And then he's getting a shoulder surgery on his left arm. But, but the bottom line is I go to a couple pro days. I usually go to the combine. We don't have that this year because of, of COVID. Um, but other than th- those, you know, few events from the middle of January until the first week in April, it's 400 players that we evaluate on tape and then spending the, basically the last week in March, the first week in April, calling every GM scout and coach that I know and trying to get a, a background check and an injury check to make sure that we know on those 400 players we've evaluated preparing for the draft, is there something we're missing? Like if this guy's a first round talent and he goes in the second or third round, there's a reason. And mm-hmm. I got to make sure I know. And, and generally it's because of character issues, you know, off the field situations that some people don't know, it, you know, private investigators, the scouts are putting in all this time talking to people in, in the town and trying to figure out what, like who this person really is. And then secondly, is there durability stuff out there that I don't have a report on? And so that that's kind of that's the process. So it start it starts before the season, and it goes all the way up. It's it, it's about 12, 12 months of of hard prep on each one of these guys, and some of them are Division three players, you know. Mm-hmm. But you know, Ali Marpet, we saw starting at guard last night for the Buccaneers, and we've got a couple D three offensive linemen in this year's class that are going to be really good too. So, you know, f- finding information on those guys is a little trickier than finding information on on um, Alex Leatherwood, the offensive tackle for, yeah, for right. Alabama, who, you know, everyone knows everything on at this point. Yeah, that's not boring at all. That'll be really fascinating to people. Um, we all know Trevor's the presumptive number one pick. Anybody can see the physical tools, the size, the arm strength, all that. 
What attributes in your mind make him a generational prospect? First of all, he's a straight liner. And by that, I mean, I mean, you've, you've been on the sideline. You've covered Clemson a ton. Mm-hmm. That dude does not change. It could be a pick. It could be a touchdown. It could be a bad read, whatever it is. He is always calm. You know, he, 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 I, I personally be, I, I think I've probably done 10 games of his live on the sideline, watching him, studying him. He, I don't think I've seen him th- throw a temper tantrum, smash anything, you know, like he just, he takes it all. Like he takes it all in. He's cool. He'll get his guys going. He's got a little, I don't want to say Brady because how do you compare, but he's got a little bit of that. Like, I got this. Don't worry about it. I got this. And then when it's time to get guys fired up, like he'll give them a little, a little go. He's, he's not Baker Mayfield. There's, there's a difference, but he's just steady. Um, I, I'd love to see him make some more throws over the middle of the field and anticipation throws. It's just not what Clemson does. But other than that, like, how do you pick a hole in this guy's game? You know, from the, the size, the durability, the, the mobility, uh, he, he actually can put a threat into you in terms of the zone read if you're going to run that every once in a while, which mm-hmm. teams are doing a little bit more in the NFL. And obviously the big-time arm and, and the ability to throw a touch and the trajectory. I mean, he's been a special player since year one. But in year one, he was afraid to step on people's toes. It wasn't his job coming into the year. Year two, he came in with so much hype. I think it was eight picks in the first seven games. Yeah, yep. But then he settled back in. And he didn't throw a pick in the last eight games, right? And he competed his tail off. And I, I respected that about him. Even I think it was the Ohio State game where he, he didn't have his fastball that night. They weren't getting open. They were going up against two corners that were going to be future first round, uh, first round draft picks. And he just decided, hey, I, I got to tuck the ball and run. And he got his ass handed to him. Yeah. And he kept popping up and popping up and competing. And, you know, this year he didn't have the offensive line. He didn't have the receivers, but he, he kept battling and um, – and the, the leadership that he showed compared to who he was two years ago, the guy that I talked to for a half hour sitting in his truck before the Wake Forest game, his first game this year, <laughs> was a different dude yeah. than, he, than the guy I talked to as a freshman. And I think that's the biggest you know, advancement is just the maturity. Like the leadership that he showed in this offseason with COVID and with all the social injustice and being a part of that rather than kind of cowering or just focusing on being <laughs> – a football guy and really like taking a stand with his brothers showed me a lot about who he is and, and everyone in the league, wherever he winds up going, it's going to be Jacksonville number one overall. Everyone in that locker room is going to respect him for the way he handles himself over the last 12 months. Completely agree. Uh, So well said. And, you know, he's projected to go to Jacksonville. We all know Urban's going to be the coach there. Now, how do you expect Urban's, Urban Meyer's leadership approach will transfer to the NFL. It's going to be interesting. He, I know Urban, like the family man. I, mm-hmm. I spent a, the year that he was at ESPN. I spent every single week flying down to his house and, and um, you know, doing, doing like sports center hits and different things and features. And so I know him like around Nate, his son and his daughters and just kind of who he is. And I, we, we talk and text all the time. But when he's a different guy when you when you go to Ohio State and you're in the building 
you know, or, or when he was at Florida in the building and in that leadership role. So I know how intense he is. And I told, I'm not, I'm not afraid to say this and he, he wouldn't mind if I said that. I, we talked about, should, should he take a job? He didn't specifically tell me which job, but he, he was asking my, what I thought. And I was like, listen, man, I, you know, I just care about you as a person and I want to make sure you're, you're healthy and you can, you can go. And he was like, all right, yep. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. And we talked, talked about some other things. I just hope he's able to get through it physically and mentally in terms of health, because I, I think he's going to, I think he'll, he'll do a really good job at the next level, but it, it's intense, man. He does, he does not do anything half-assed mm -hmm. if you will. I mean, he just, he's going to dive into it and it's going to be, it's going to consume him. And it's, it's new to him being in the league and, and there it's different. It, the recruiting part actually is going to make it easier on him that he doesn't have to recruit that there's free agency in the draft and, and there's not, you know, you're not calling a bunch of 17 year olds every single day, making sure that they're still on board and this, that, the other thing. So I think that will take a, a little bit away from his responsibility, which will be good. Um, but he, he is, he loves psychology. He spends so much time delving into that aspect of things and he's what he my guess is what he'll do is spend a lot of time figuring out all right what's the psychology of of leading 18 to 22 year old men versus 24 to you know 40 year old men and i, I think that that's going to be the one transition that he has to make but i'm pretty confident that he'll make it because he's so in tune with that that psychology of of leading men Man, I appreciate you. I got a hundred more. I don't want to keep you. Uh, I could yeah. talk about it all day. And and I, I just I appreciate your friendship. I appreciate the example you set for everybody with how hard you work and how well respected you are. I appreciate Stay the same things about you, bud. It's not not to be corny, but I I, I really respect what you do and how, how how hard you've worked and and I know what you've come from and and what you've become. And it's it's really cool to see you're. You're, we don't have a ton of the the great guys left. We've lost a lot of, a lot of guys over the years, but um, but you're one of the the true great men at, at ESPN, and and I, I'm honored to be a friend of yours. Seriously. Thank you, brother. Likewise, I appreciate that. If uh, if you were here, we could hold hands and sing Kumbaya, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Um... <laughs> stay uh, stay warm up there, brother. I appreciate oh, you man. so much. <laughs> All right. Take All care. Right, man. I meant what I said there. Uh, my admiration for him as a person is so high, and I'm so grateful for his kind words too. Uh, it's humbling. There's so much more I want to unpack. <laughs> There's so much more I want to unpack, but we'll do well, that another time. Well, maybe in that month where he takes off, we can see if he'll give we us 30 bother minutes. Him. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man, I know you're trying to go to the beach, but – Yeah, he's just a total stud. Uh, and, I mean, I'm also – he we didn't touch it on here, but remember, he didn't get to do the draft last year mm -hmm. because he had COVID. COVID. That's right. Yeah, and he was um, actually, you know, he was one of the first people that I reached out to when I started to realize how much it was kicking my butt. And he was an amazing resource to me. And that then prompted me to try to be that resource for anybody who I knew that got it subsequently. So, so I can't um, wait to see him back on the draft because me too, man. that's his Super Bowl. Yep, it is. And and he's the Tom Brady. How about that for a nice little closing comment? Um, 
What a total stud, man. I appreciate his time so much. Travis, great job getting Todd. And if y'all want to hear the latest on the NFL draft from Todd and Mel and Field Yates, again, make sure to check out the First Draft podcast on ESPN Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you choose to get your podcast. It's fascinating, and they'll keep you up to date all the way up to the draft on who to expect your team to take on that amazing day for so many. This is Marty Smith America. We're so grateful for you guys being a part of it every week. Thank you so much to our law enforcement officials all over the country working hard to keep our community safe, our first responders risking their own lives so often to save others. Y'all are heroes. I thought it was awesome what the NFL did, having so many first responders at the Super Bowl as guests. That was beautiful. Thank you so much to the United States military. We appreciate your sacrifice so much. We live in the greatest country in the world. It's because of y'all. Thank you guys for listening. This is Marty Smith's America. We'll see you next time around.